For a couple of years in college, I worked at a Bible camp called Camp Lebanon. It's in central Minnesota. Now, I know this is a trout church, I'm sorry, but it's where I grew up, so it's got a special place in my heart. And I have to say, I love it there. I love so many things about it. I love being outside. I love the staff community. Um, I love playing games. I love demolishing children at said games, so I feel better about myself. And most importantly, I love to see God work. And it seems like every week as I would go to work, without failing, God would just do something really special. Um, one thing that we did was at the end of each week, the director would ask all of the kids who had made a decision for Jesus to come up so that we could celebrate them um, and just congratulate them for a monumental step in their life. And I have to admit that whether right or wrong, good or bad, oftentimes I had mixed feelings uh, at this point in the week. And see, the reason for that is, is that I know that there is a cycle that happens at camp a lot of times where kids will come and they'll have a really good experience, they'll have an encounter with God, and they'll commit their lives to Jesus, and they're all gung-ho about Christianity for about a week. And then it kind of fades away and goes on to the back burner for the rest of the year until they come back to camp the next year. And then they have another crazy week and they rediscover their, their dedication to Christianity and their love for God and they recommit their lives to Jesus. And that lasts about two weeks and then fades away until next year they come back and you see where it's going. Now that's not to say um, that every kid has that experience, and it's not to say that if you or somebody you know have had that experience, that it doesn't have any value or meaning, because it does. But part of my job was to talk with kids in my cabin after they had made a decision for Jesus. And rather than just blindly um, say, good job, can't wait to see you in heaven someday, and then write down my decision slip, uh, what they did that week, I'd ask them, uh, pretty point blank, I'd say, do you know what you did and why? Especially with some of the little kids, they didn't always know what they were actually doing. Uh, and I bring this up because we're going to be looking in Matthew today at a story where Jesus seems to deter people who are wanting to follow him. And it was a little confusing the first time I read it. So we're going to be looking at Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22. It says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then the teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, remember the first time that I read this, I was pretty confused. It, was, it didn't seem very Jesus-like of, of Jesus to do that. Why was he so harsh to these two well-intentioned guys? Well, to answer the, that question, we've got to look a little deeper into the context of the situation. So we're going to look at each guy individually. The first one, first one, we see that he is described as a teacher of the law, a religious leader, in other words, a scribe. Now, What's important to remember about scribes is to this point in Matthew, they've only been subjects of denunciation. In other words, they haven't been uh, the good guy, the good example, or the protagonist in, in any story they've been in. They've only been the bad guy. So knowing that, the reader would probably assume and expect that whatever this guy is doing, he's probably doing wrong. 
And Matthew doesn't give us any indication in the scripture that it's any different or that we should expect any different in this specific scenario. Another thing that we need to know about them is that these people are known for their, their arrogance, their hypocrisy, and their ignorance, and that Jesus has had a few run-ins with them already and will continue to um, in the rest of his biographies. He describes them in Matthew 23, saying that everything they do is for people to see. They love their place of honor at banquets and most important seats in the synagogues. In other words, they, they have a very self-seeking uh, purpose in general. Most religious leaders in this uh, in scripture do, and at least in this time in Jesus' life. And um, they're, they're more concerned with their own status and their own... Um, gain their own glory a lot of the time. So Jesus knows this, and he knows that this guy, even though he's pledging his full allegiance, likely doesn't really know what he's getting himself into. And so he warns him. He says, look, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but I, even though I am literally God, don't have a place to lay my head every single night. Now, we know from other parts of Matthew that Jesus did have a home base in Capernaum, but... Um, the point is that this ministry isn't luxurious, it's taxing, it's exhausting, and sacrifices a lot of times even basic human comforts and securities. That's what he's telling this guy. Now the second guy, this one seems even harsher. See, the first one, a lot of times you could write off as like, oh, it's, I mean, it's a Pharisee, so you know, Jesus knows what's in their heart and all that. But the second one, this guy seems even harsher. See, at first glance, it seems like a really reasonable request. I want to follow you, Jesus. Just let me bury my dad. Jesus says, nope, that's not good enough. First time I read it, I was like, again, that's not very Christ-like Jesus. Like, guy's dad just died. Cut him a break. Like, what's, what's going on? Well, that's actually the thing, that there's no scriptural evidence that this guy's father had actually passed away. See, in this time, when a father died, mourners would gather immediately and a funeral procession would take their body to the tomb and then the family would mourn and grieve uh, privately for uh, at least a week, if not a month or more. Which would mean that if this guy's father had just died, he wouldn't have time to be talking with rabbis about discipleship and theology. He would be busy uh, doing family stuff. So there's no indication that this guy's dad is, is actually dead. There's actually a popular idiom um, that they used said, saying, let me bury my father first, would function as a request to wait until one's father dies, perhaps uh, not for years, and then they can fulfill their family obligation and collect their share of the inheritance. So essentially what he's saying to Jesus is, I want to follow you, but first let me wait uh, once my father dies, I'll fulfill my obligation, I'll get my affairs in order, and then once I'm ready, I'll follow you. Jesus says, sorry, but it's not good enough. If you're going to follow me, I need complete devotion, devoid of any distractions, prior uh, priorities, or, or different engagements. I need to be number one. Now, one of my mentors a few years back He's a, a youth pastor who speaks all over the country, uh, a lot of respect for him, very wise person. He told me that when he speaks at Christian camps, he almost tries to talk kids out of the gospel. Now, why would he do that? Well, he said, he told me, and he's a good speaker, so I'm sure it is for him, but he said, 
it's relatively easy to get a bunch of people to say yes on gospel night to an altar call. It's relatively easy to get a group of middle school girls to cry on gospel night. He said, when the worship pastor comes up or the director comes up and asks kids to raise their hand, and 85% of the kids in the room raise their hand to say that they've given their life to Jesus, was that the Holy Spirit? Was it really the Holy Spirit? He said, well, it could have been. It could be that God was really, really moving in large numbers, and 85% of the kids really gave their lives to Jesus that night. And if so, that's amazing. But it also could have been that the lights were down, the worship band was singing Oceans for the 30th time in the last four days, uh, the, the, you're hopped up on sugar and caffeine, it's late at night, you've had a long week, and you're an emotional teenager. Now, it's a little cynical, I know, it's pessimistic, but the point is that oftentimes, uh, oftentimes potential disciples of Jesus, they get enamored with and long for the glory and the good things that are associated with Jesus, and they neglect and forget about there's real hardship, real suffering, and real sacrifice. So that's what Jesus is doing here. He's not, he's not rejecting them. He's not telling them not to follow him. He's saying, look, I want you to follow me. I think that would be great. And he tells the, the second man straight up to follow him, but he doesn't sugarcoat it. That's going to be easy. He doesn't he doesn't dumb it down. He said, it's going to take sacrifice. You're not going to get all of the basic comforts and material possessions that you might want. And you're going to have to sacrifice things, including your own family uh, obligations sometimes. He doesn't ask us to kind of follow him. He doesn't want halfway followers. He wants disciples. He wants people who are willing to follow him and give everything. The cost is high. And that's what he's telling them. So let's keep reading. Verses 23 through 27 says, Then he got in the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came upon the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. So a lot of times we read these as two separate stories. And when we look at the first verse, we see that they're actually continuing the same story. It says, then he got into the boat and his disciples. Now, he hadn't yet called the 12 disciples, um, our favorite 12 or 11, I guess. So uh, disciples at this point would be a broader term that could potentially even include uh, the first two guys in the story. Um, and they get into the boat, and then this crazy storm hits. And, and Matthew describes it as a seismos, or literally translated to English would be an earthquake, which would mean that this isn't your cute little average thunderstorm that you just turn the wiper blades on extra high and keep driving. This is like Forrest Gump, Lieutenant Dan, and the shrimp boat kind of a storm. Uh, water is crashing over the, the boat. The rain probably hurts when it hits them in the face because it's coming down so hard. Um, people's lives seem to be at stake. And Jesus, who evidently wasn't kidding when he said that his ministry was exhausting and he had no place to lay his head, was in the back of the boat, sawing locks. People come to him saying, Jesus, Jesus, we're going to die, we're going to die, help us out. He gets up, he calmly uh, rebukes the waves and everything is still. 
In doing this, Jesus shows off his divine power and confirms that he is exactly who he said he is, the Son of God, the one true Christ, the Messiah. He shows that he's got a power that is divine and only from God and that has been given to him by no other man. The other thing that he shows is that he's somebody worthy of being followed. Jesus can calm the literal storms. Why can't he calm the figurative storms? In 2020, uh, there's a lot of figurative storms, and we are in desperate need of somebody who's worth following. Whether that that storm is uh, COVID and the pandemic, whether it's um, the election and political division that we're experiencing as a nation, whether it's uh, damaged and fractured race relations and injustice, whether it's financial problems, whether it's a loss of a job or a change in school, whether it's a strained relationship with a spouse or a loved one, Jesus is there with us in the figurative storms, and he is more than capable of calming them and of rebuking them. So, Jesus requires giving everything, but he also proves to us right here that he is worthy of being followed, that he is worthy of getting everything. Now the last thing to note is that as Jesus rebukes the storm, he also rebukes the disciples. He says, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And reading this at first glance, it didn't make sense to me, because they seem to have faith. They show a dependence in him. They say, God, we're scared. There's this storm. Um, save us. They acknowledge that he is somebody who's able to save them. But then we look at that again, and he doesn't say, why do you have such little faith? He says, why are you so afraid? In other words, if you are on a boat with somebody that you know has the power to save you, why are you so concerned with what's going to happen to you? Why are you so afraid for your safety? See, there's no way that boat is going down. They have the one true living God on the boat with them. There's no need for them to be afraid. A lot of times, as Christians, we start following Jesus, uh, and then when those storms hit that we've been promised are going to happen, because like we found out earlier, the cost is high, we get scared. We shy away. We, we, we quake in fear and we run to God, and, and that's not a bad thing. It's good to, for us to run to God when we get afraid, but I think the point is that uh, we don't need to be afraid when the storms come, because whatever happens to us, regardless if we win or lose, if it's life or death, our, hand, our lives are in the hand of the God who has promised to do exactly what he says he will. He's the God who calms the storm. He's the only one worth following. Amen.